Church, let me invite you this morning and turn to the book of Genesis. As we continue our study in the life of Abraham, you'll find our time together will be spent in Genesis chapter 15. Uh, Genesis 15, we'll we'll do the whole chapter this morning, God willing. You'll find that on page 10 if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible in front of you. And um, just to let you know a little bit into the sermon, we're going to go all the way to Romans chapter 4 and look at the passage that actually Dave read for us this morning. And so you might even want to find that now, Romans 4 as well. And I think Dave said that's on page 941. And I trust you'll be blessed even as we work our way through this passage this morning. Uh, After Sunday school, I was walking through the parking lot, and there's quite a number of cars out in the parking lot. And so let me just remind you all this morning that uh, Progressive Automotive across the street has graciously allowed us the use of their parking lot on Sunday mornings. And so just to let you know, that's available to you. And if you're uh, maybe some of the younger folk in the church, maybe you even think that of that as your ministry, that you can allow our seniors to park close to the church, our families with small children to park close to the church. And those who don't fit in that category, maybe you can say, my ministry is to bless my brothers and sisters by parking across the street. I trust that would be a, a rich blessing to them. So Genesis chapter 15, I'm excited to be in, in um, perhaps the uh, most important chapter in all of Genesis as we Consider the great salvation which our Lord has given us. We'll begin in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old. A female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over and against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be their servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, 
a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Our Father, we're thankful for your word in which we can now consider. It is once again our great honor and privilege to come before the creator of all things, the one whom we, through Christ, call Father, and ask that you would speak to us through your word, a great truth for us to consider this morning as we think about the promises you have made to Father Abram and even to us through Jesus. We pray, Father, that today you would work in us, that you might increase our faith in what you have told us through your word, that we might follow you more closely, love you more intensely, and delight in you more zealously. And so do this good work in us as you've molded us into the image of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the religions of the world teach us that we make amends for our sins through good deeds. Sometimes this is called penance. It's an idea that you voluntarily inflict punishment on on yourself in order to pay for your sin. And that, that might be praying a certain number of prayers. It might be fasting. It might be acts of service. Sometimes penance, however, is a little more extreme, a little more bizarre. For instance, in Havana, Cuba, a man, in order to expiate his sin, attached a large stone to his ankle with a chain several feet long, and then he pulled this rock inch by inch on a pilgrimage to a sanctuary devoted to St. Lazarus. Or, interestingly, in 2001, ABC News reported in the Philippines that 11 individuals had voluntarily crucified themselves as an act of penance. The ABC News writes, Close to 1,000 residents watched under the hot sun as these 11 people staggered onto a fenced knoll where neighbors awaited with wooden crosses, hammers, and four-inch nails. Bus driver Chitto Sengalang grimaced as the nails were driven into his palms and his feet as he was nailed to a cross. The cross was hoisted aloft for the crowd to see. This is the 14th year in a row that this man has had his hands and feet nailed to a cross. One spectator said, quote, It's amazing to see people sacrificing themselves for their sins. That's interesting, isn't it? Now, we Americans, of course, are not not so extreme, are we? Um, But we're not all that different. Many believe that you secure forgiveness from God through acts of righteousness. Consider the great American Muhammad Ali, for instance, who explained, and I quote him, One day we're going to die, and God is going to judge our good deeds and our bad deeds. And if our bad outweigh the good, you go to hell. But if the good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. Or consider a less famous American named Bill, who had a practice of donating blood. 
In fact, Bill had given over 100 pints of blood, and, he, and, and what a great act of service certainly that is. I trust many people probably owe their lives to Bill's generosity and kindness. But it's in, what's interesting to me is the hope that he placed in this. When asked why he's giving all this blood, he said, when that final whistle blows and God asks, what did you do? I'll just say, well, I gave 100 pints of blood. Then Bill added with a laugh, that ought to get me in. So Bill is counting on giving blood to secure his place in heaven. I I wonder, sadly, if one day he'll discover he is trusting in the wrong blood. But what do you think? How does one atone for sin and misdeeds? What are you relying on? I trust it's, it's, not, it's not your annual crucifixion, like some in Philippines evidently, or even dragging a stone by your ankle, but perhaps you're trusting in your acts of kindness and your acts of generosity. Maybe not the blood you donate, but the time. Maybe you're thinking, I, I, you know, God will let me into heaven because I, I help my elderly neighbor or I assist in the food bank or I even teach a Sunday school class. Perhaps you're thinking... God should let me in because of my work ethic or my faithfulness to my spouse or my love for my children or my commitment to my country. I think many people are trusting in their own resume, their own spiritual resume, in order to be acceptable to God. And we come to this wonderful passage that actually deals with these issues. It's at the core of Christianity. It tackles the question, how do I deal with my sin and be accepted by God? In fact, some have suggested what we'll consider this morning contains the most important verse in Genesis or even the entire Bible itself. Of course, we remember the context of where we are in Genesis 15. God has created the world, is perfect, beautiful, and in harmony, and mankind, the pinnacle of his creation, rebelled against God, which brought everything into chaos. We went from creation to chaos, sin, misery, brokenness, and so forth. And then God's response to all that chaos is to call Abram into a covenant. So we go from creation to chaos to covenant. Now, covenant is simply have uh, promises. It's a fancy word for promises or vows we make to another person that brings us into relationship with that person. For instance, many of you are in a marriage covenant. You've made vows to another person, and they have made vows to you which brought you into a relationship. Well, God is, in, is going to enter into a covenant with this old polytheistic idolater named Abram, and his barren wife named Sarai. And he's promised not only am I going to enter into a relationship with them, he's saying, Abram, through you and through Sarah, I'm going to begin to redeem people from all nations and all tribes and all tongues. In fact, I'm going to restore the kingdom of God through your lineage. In fact, he, he promises Abraham really two things, doesn't he, as we've studied. He's promised him uh, offspring, and he's promised him land, okay? He's promised him a place to live, and in that place, he's going to have lots of people which are going to bring blessings. And if you have ears to hear it, it sounds a lot like Eden. There's going to, Abram, I'm going to give you a place, and, and you're going to multiply in that place with all these people, and it's going to be a wonderful place where you receive the blessings upon you. And so Abram is very much pictured to us as a new Adam. God's starting over. But just like an Adam, Abram's going to have to decide, does he believe God? Right? God's going to ask him, if you will, especially in this chapter, do you think I'm lying to you? Or do you believe me? 
Just like Adam. And by the way, just like Adam, God gives him no proof. Okay? In fact, the, the evidence to God's promises will actually point against them. All the evidence seems to point to contrary to what God is actually saying. And he comes to Abram in light of that and he says, Will you believe my promises? Which is really the theme of this whole chapter. We'll see that Abram does. And doing so has a dramatic, in fact, an eternal change in Abram's life. And I would suggest to you this morning that if you believe in God, if you trust in Christ, it will make an eternal difference in your life as well. And so we begin uh, in considering the belief in the promises with the promises that are made. Number one, promises are made. And we pick up the story in verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. As you notice, God comes to Abram in in a vision, though we're not told what that vision is, because it wasn't important, evidently. What we're told is what Abram heard, which are these promises. He begins by saying, fear not. Fear not. So what's Abram afraid of? Well, you remember remember what what just happened, right? Right? In fact, you, you look at the very beginning of verse 1, after these things, what things is he talking about? Genesis 14, remember that? Abram goes to war, okay? He defeats four kingdoms. Abram's made some enemies, hasn't he? And so God, now after those things, after that war, God shows to him and says, hey, fear not, Abram. You know, the old man just has, has upset quite a number of people. Maybe he's thinking, what have I done? Right? Are they going to come get me? Are we safe? Should I leave? God says, you don't need to fear. I have a plan. There's nothing to worry about. Why? Because I am your shield. I'll protect you, he says. And God could be your shield too. In fact, if you're in Christ, I trust he is. And God will shield you, not just against people, of course, but against your spiritual enemies, You understand, Christian, that there's our enemies out there who want you to be sad and lonely and bitter and divided. We have an enemy who wants to destroy our relationships, rip our marriages apart, get our kids to rebel, lead us into sin. You say, how am I going to protect myself against this enemy? Well, you get under the shield. You run to the tower. For the psalmist says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. If you are under the shield, it doesn't matter what the enemy could do because God is protecting you. But so often we, like foolish children, we run out from under that shield, don't we? We run into sin. We run into rebellion and folly. And there is great danger out there away from the shield of God. And often life goes bad, as you know. So we need to stay under the shield. We need to abide in Christ. We need to seek the Lord in prayer and reading his word. Have him talk to us. Gather with God's people in worship. Be quick to obey the Lord. And God says, I will protect you. Christian How many tens of thousands of potential dangers should have happened to you and haven't because God has shielded you? Perhaps only eternity will tell that he has shielded you with his never-failing presence, with his ever-watchful care, his ever-living promises. Fear not, for I am your shield. But not just a promise to be a shield, he's promised to be his reward. Your reward shall be very great. Your translation may say, I am your very great reward. Now remember, Abram just gave away all of his plunder. He just went to war, got all these spoils, said, I don't want any of it. You can have it. He walked away from a great deal of wealth. And God shows up and says, don't worry, I'm your reward. The Lord himself 
will be your reward, uh, not your spoils, but me. The psalmist says, there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you, O God. Now let's be honest, money's nice, isn't it? It comes in handy, doesn't it? In fact, it not only comes in handy, often you're able to buy things that perhaps you, 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 you don't need, but you like, and that's certainly a blessing. But if you choose, what would you rather choose between this and that, that thing you've dreamed of, or a close relationship with God? What would you rather have, the toys that you imagine, or know the joy of God and the peace of God and the presence of God in your life, right? Won't you take Jesus every time? I mean, children, think about it. What would you rather have, money or your mom, right? Money or your dad, Will you not take your parents every time? Lover, what would you rather have, money or your spouse? Right? Would you rather have a, a great deal of wealth or someone who is committed to you and devoted to you and, and will, will be for you for, for all your days? What would you rather have? Of course, the answer is obvious. I tell you, how much better is God than your parents? How much better is God than your lover? When God says, I will be your reward. I will walk with you and I will be your presence. And so Abram can sing, perhaps like we can sing, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure thou art. I'm your reward. And so God comes in these great promises to Abram. But notice Abram's response there, recorded in verse two. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. It's an interesting response, isn't it? It doesn't seem real pleased with God's promises there, what God's offering him. He says, Thank you very much, but I'm still kind of confused, to be perfectly honest. Because years ago, God, you called me, and you said, leave my land, leave my family, leave my country, everything I know. I left, and I know I'm old, and I know my wife is infertile, but you told us you're going to give us a son. In fact, you've told me this now three times, I'm going to give you a son, I'm going to give you a son. So I leave my family, I leave everything I know, I travel a thousand miles, I'm living in a tent, in a land that I do not know, and a great deal has happened. God, I've, I've traveled all over this country, I've built altars, I, we had that whole disaster in Egypt, which I learned from. I came back, I gave Lot his pick, I thought I was following you, and trusting you and doing so, and then I just went to war and, 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 and set the captive is free. And so my life has been really active, but one thing is staying the same. I still don't have a son. Where's my son you keep promising me? Because I have a lot of servants. You've given me servants, and you know what, God? They all have sons. And I have soldiers, and they have sons. There's children everywhere in my camp, but none of them are mine. Now, you see, by the way, the value that the Bible repeatedly places on children. In case you haven't heard it in a while, the Bible tells us that children are a blessing from the Lord. And you can see the great sadness that the absence of children has brought into this man's life. He doesn't care if he's rich. He doesn't care if he's got an army of 300 men and servants everywhere. He doesn't care if he's a famous warrior because he has no children. And he says, God, if I die, everything I've gotten, everything you give me is going to go to my servant. And I simply don't understand. I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and still I have no son. Now, how many of you have learned this in your relationship with God? 
that God is always late. <laughs> right? God never shows up early. You know, I had nothing to do. I just thought I'd come over 15 minutes early. God's never early. Of course, to our timing, right? Right? We don't like waiting. I mean, we get annoyed with the microwave. Right? Right? It's the longest 45 seconds ever. Right? I'm so hungry. Right? We don't like waiting at all. Okay? And, 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 and Abram's right there with us. He's saying, God, it's, it's been years. And by the way, it's going to be 20 more years. But notice God answers. His answer is in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. Maybe you have a little footnote next to the word son. Drop down to the bottom of your Bible and you'll read the literal translation that will come out of your own loins. What he's telling Abram is that you're going to have a son and it will be a son from your own body. It's not an adopted heir. As wonderful as that would be, I'm promising you that you're actually from your own body, you're going to have a son, and not just a son, because you see in verse 5, and he brought him outside and said, look towards the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So God says, Abram, let's go for a walk. Evidently, all this is happening inside his tent. And, the, and he says, I need to show you something. I love that little phrase, he brought him outside. I don't know what that means. I don't know if he grabbed him by the hand or threw him over his shoulder and said, we're going outside. And out they go. And he, he says, okay, now I, I want you to look up and start counting. One, two, three, four. Now, God, there's, there's, this is going to take a while. There are a lot of, lot of stars. And God says, I know. I know. And for every star in the sky, that's how many people are depending on me keeping this promise to you. As many as the stars are, those are the people who are depending upon me. Do you think I'm going to fail you? Do you think I'm going to fail them? Look up, Abram, because it's not just about you. There are 300, 400 people in Hamilton, Virginia, 4,000 years from now, and I intend to save them, and I'm going to save them through you, through your son. I'm going to bring them into a relationship. Look up. There's hundreds and millions of other people, and I'm going to bless them all through you. So he's saying, Abram, I love you, but this whole relationship is not just about you. Right? I have a big plan. There are a lot of people in this world, and I'm going to keep my promises. You ever say to God, now, Lord, now's the time. And God, I think, tells us, hey, hold on, slow down. It's a big place. I'm doing a lot of things. 99% you have no idea about. It's all connected. Just trust me. My timing is far better than yours. And so there Abram looks up in silence in the presence of God Almighty. The, the, the man of, of struggling faith, if we could call him, is humbled and hushed. I trust he would never look at the night sky the same again. I, I think every time he looked up, there was a continual reminder of the promises of God. I wonder about us. I wonder if we could grab some of our kiddos and, and we go outside one night and turn off the flashlights and look up and say, children, I want you to see the love that God has for the nations. 
I want you to see the love that God has to save. In fact, if you've ever doubted the promises of God, maybe this is what you should do. You should go out on a moonless night and look to the heavens as the stars almost can serve as a sacrament to us to remind us of the promises of God, to help us in our times of doubt. As you see, Abram clearly is doubting. I I find this very interesting that Abram, this great man of faith that we call him, and he certainly is that, he's doubting here, isn't he? Right? And he's saying, what about this? And you promised me this because, you know, in fact, up, uh, this is the first time that Abram and God have this conversation. Up to this point, um, God tells Abram to do something, and what does Abram do? He does it. He doesn't, he doesn't enter into a conversation. Often, not always, but often in the Bible, when God shows up and has some instructions, if the person talks back, that's usually not a good sign. Okay? okay? It's just like parents, right? When you tell your children... Go clean your room. Are you looking for a conversation? No, no. You're looking for a yes, ma'am, right? A yes, sir, okay? That's what you're looking for. You're not looking for, well, you, mom, I've been praying about it, and I just don't feel at peace about cleaning my room, right? right? You know, I've read the Bible. I can't find any verses about a clean room, so I'm not quite sure what's this all about, right? No, no, no. You, you just want them to go, obey. And now here's, God says, okay, Abram, this is what I'm going to do. Abram says, oh, well, i got some questions. I'm not sure. I have some doubts. You ever have doubts? You ever have questions? Right? You ever, like, uh, God says, I promise to answer your prayers, and you keep praying, but you say, it doesn't seem like anything's happening. Right? God says, I'll never leave you. He promises you I'll never leave you, but you feel alone. God promises you peace and joy, but all you feel is anxiety and sadness. And you say, God, I don't understand. I don't understand what this is all about. And that's where Abram's at. Right? You, you make these promises, you, I, I'll be your shield, I'll be your reward. Well, you've made promises to me before, God. You keep telling me I'm going to have a son, and you haven't given me a son. In other words, you keep making promises, but how can I assure you're going to keep them? Because, because uh, I, I, you haven't given me the first promise. Right? This is what Abram's doing. Now, he's not saying, God, you're a liar. Don't, don't, don't put that in his mouth. He's saying, God, I want to believe, I want to understand. And he takes his doubts to God. He's not walking away from God. He's not saying, forget you, God. He doubts and what? Runs to God. He says, help me. And how does God respond? How dare you? Right? You silly old man. Who do you think you are? I'm God. How, what do you talk back to me like that? I'm going to squash you like a bug. Is that what God says? No. No, no. He said, well, let's go outside. Let me show you something. He's patient with doubt. Please understand this. God is patient with doubt, but he doesn't want you to stay there. He says, okay, let's move beyond this. Who's the most famous doubter in the Bible? It's Thomas, right? Everyone comes to Thomas. They say, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Thomas says what? I doubt it. I don't think so. In fact, I don't think so. I'm not going to believe it unless I put my, you know, I see with my eyes. I want to put my finger in his, in his wounds, in the nail prints. And Jesus shows up and he says, Hey, Thomas, I hear you're looking for me, right? Okay, you want to touch me? Go ahead. Here I am. Touch me. Do you see the balance that God has with doubt? It's not, how dare you? It's, go ahead, touch me. He's gentle with doubters. But it's not, at the same time, you doubt, that's okay, you're human, how can you have certainty anyways? Right? No, he says, okay, let's move beyond this. Stop doubting. Thomas, stop doubting. And believe me, I think this is important, because you go outside these walls into a secular world, and the secular world will say, how can you know for certain anything about spiritual matters? How can you have any certainty whatsoever? And if you do, the secular world will say, you're a simpleton, right, won't they? To the, to the world out there, doubt's a virtue. 
But you come within the church walls, you come into traditional culture, and oftentimes doubt is not even allowed. Don't you dare doubt. Don't you dare have questions, right? And, and sometimes within churches, doubt's a sin. So out there, doubt's a virtue. In here, doubt's a sin. And Jesus shows up and he says, no, no, no. I want to hear your doubts. Tell me them. But let's move beyond them. Let's work through them. So if, if you ever are doubting, that's okay. But you need to, you can't just sit there. You have to begin to move forward. He says, Abram, let's, let's move beyond this. Let me be clear what I want you to do. Look up. This is what I promised to do to you. And he gives them amazing promises. Many the stars in the sky. That's how your descendants will be. Do you believe me? Does he believe? He does, doesn't he? As we consider, secondly, promises believe. Abram doesn't speak at all at this point, but he simply, we simply read in verse 6. And he believed the Lord. He saw the stars, as one has written, and beyond the stars, the promises, and beyond the promises, God himself. That starry night, with the promises of God stirring in his soul, perhaps Abram said in his heart, Amen. So be it, God. And Abraham believed that he would be the father of of a vast people. And when, we, when the Bible says he believed there in verse 6, it's not an he agreed with the facts. Abram is trusting God. He is committing himself to God. He took hold of God's promises and he based his life upon them. It's Martin Luther who said long ago, he was 75 years old, and Sarah Barron, how, I ask you, do these facts agree with the promise I will make, you, make of you a large nation? Where are the descendants to come from? These high mountains, which could suppress his faith completely, the holy patriarch overcomes and crosses by faith. He simply clings to this one thought. Behold, God is promising this. Right? God's told me this. I believe it, therefore. Abraham believed, and then what did God do based upon that belief? Well, here it is in verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and, it, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And it's at this point, Genesis 15, 6, that we come to the heart of Christian truth. At least the heart of our understanding of salvation. And, and more than any other verse in all of Genesis, this is the one you need to understand. Genesis 15, 6. In fact, I would encourage you this afternoon, you look across the, the table with, with a loved one or a friend that you're going out to lunch with. And, and you say, well, what do these words mean for me? Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What impact does that have upon me? Because very clearly this was in the mind of the apostles. Because Genesis 15, 6 is quoted in Galatians, it's quoted in James, and it's quoted in Romans three separate times. In fact, in chapter, Romans chapter 4, the word counted or credited is mentioned 11 times. So let me invite you to turn over to Romans chapter 4, and we'll just spend about 10 minutes here and return to Genesis 15 to finish the message. In Romans, uh, there's this argument going on, and the argument goes like this. God is pleased with people who live a good life. God accepts those who keep his law, that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, God will receive you into his presence when you die and of course, as we've already established, this is what most religions teach, and this is what most people think um, outside of Christianity. But Paul says, well, okay, dealing with that argument, he says, okay, well, let's go back to the beginning. 
Let's start from, you know, a follower of God, number one, Abram. How was it that Abram was accepted by God? We use the word justified. Justified. It simply means to be declared right before God. So that's what we mean by that word. When you're justified, we mean that God has declared you right or God has declared you righteous. Well, we'll look in verse 1 of Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abram, our forefather, according to the flesh? Right? So what did Abram get in his relationship with God? What did he gain? Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, right? If, that is, if God accepted him by doing good things, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In, in other words, he says, if, if, if Abraham has, is, is received by God because he was a good man, then Abraham could boast about all of his goodness. And then he says in verse 3, well, what does Scripture say? Which I think is a fantastic question. Right? It's not a popular question. Today we say, well, what do you think or what do you feel? How do you deal with this? All right? We want to know about us. Paul says, I don't care what you think. He says, what does the Bible say? What does Scripture say? There in verse 3, well, we know what it says. He quotes Genesis 15, 6 here. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In verse 4, now to the one who works, that's the one who does good, his wages are counted to him. Uh, his wages are not counted to him as a gift, but as his due. Note verse 5, this is important for us. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him, who justifies the ungodly, there's your key phrase, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, God, Paul is saying, the Bible is saying, that God justifies the ungodly. He declares the ungodly to be righteous. Well, how does he do this? He does it not because of what they've done, but because of their faith. Their faith, there at the end of verse 5, his faith is counted as righteousness. So you can't come to God with your resume. God, here's what I've done, right? Because, to be honest, let me, I, he's just not going to be all that impressed. Because you're not, you're not holy. You're not clean. You're not righteous. And I think if you're honest, you would realize your good works don't even come close to outweighing your bad. And I think God would say, listen, you've ignored me. You love yourself far more than others. You think you're in charge. No, no. You don't want to come to me based upon your record. You say, well, then how do I get, how do I get declared right by God? How do, I, how, do I get, how do I become righteous? God says, I'll give it to you. Right? You say, what do I do? God says, you don't do anything. You just believe in me. You say, don't I have to be good? God says, No. You just need to be forgiven. Forgiven. How did Abraham get credited with righteousness? He didn't drag a large stone by his ankle. He didn't walk an aisle. He didn't even pray a sinner's prayer. He believed. And God credited him with righteousness. This is the doctrine we sometimes call justification by faith alone. Now, go down to Romans chapter 4 and verse 20. I want, to see, want you to see this applies to us today. He says here in verse 20, no distrust or unbelief, this is about Abram, made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, so he gave glory to God. 
fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Right? I believe, in other words, he believed God. Verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, here it is, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Now about you, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, uh, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, Paul says this wasn't just about Abram, this was about all who would come to Christ. It was for our sake, because Jesus has died, why? For our trespasses. Or 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sin. Or Galatians 1, verse 4, he gave himself for our sins. God, Jesus says, says, I will take your sin, I will cast it behind my back. I will take your sin and I will cast it into the depth of the sea. I will take your sin and cast it as far as east is from the west. And I will remember your sins no more. And I will credit you with righteousness if you believe. If you believe. Now, if you're here today and, and you're not a Christian, we're, so, we're delighted to have you. And, and it, if you think that Christians think that they are better than you, right? Some, some of you have gotten that impression. Some, in fact, Christians have given you that impression. Sometimes Christians can be the most judgmental, arrogant, annoying people that I've ever met. Right? And so if we have given you the impression that we think we're better than others, let me say on behalf of all Christians, we're sorry. Because we actually don't believe that. We, we don't believe we're any better than anyone else. We actually think of the opposite. I would suggest we are far more aware of our own wickedness and our own pride and our own hypocrisy than most people. We don't think we're better than you. We think we're sinners. We, we, that's why we think this is such good news. That's why I'm yelling. Sorry about that. I get excited, right? Okay. The good news is I, I need to be saved because I'm a sinner. And I will not be saved by my good works. I will not be saved by my law keeping. I will not be saved through acts of penance. I will only be saved just like my father Abram was saved by faith. Do you believe that? That's my question for you. Do you trust Jesus? I mean, you're going to have to trust someone in this life, don't you? Have you found anybody better than Jesus? If you yield your life to him, the Bible says he will deliver you from all your unrighteousness and credit you with Jesus' righteousness. He will see you as he sees Jesus that is as perfectly righteous and Abram believed and by God's grace so do I. I hope you do as well. Well, he moves on there to the thirdly and lastly that he actually does more than just make these promises. He wants to guarantee them, which I think is incredibly kind of him. Right? In fact, he's not done with the promises, as you see in verse 7. Well, let's turn back to Genesis 15, shall we? In, in verse 7, we continue the story in which God has more promises to make to Abram, which is quite um, wonderful of him, I trust. In verse 7, it says, and, to him, and he said to him, I am the Lord. Um, I think that's interesting. He says, okay, Abraham, let's remember our roles. Okay? Parents, you ever do this? I am your dad. I right? just want to remind you. You are a child. I am Adults, parents, I love you, but let's get our roles straight. I am the Lord, he says, who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans. Why? To give you this land to possess. To possess. Okay, I'm going to give you this land. Here's another promise. Abram's response probably won't surprise us much in verse 8. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How can I know? How can I know? For, how can I be certain? 
Okay? That's the question. Right? You ever ask that question? Some, I, I've talked to some of you. Some of you struggle with this. How can I know for certain I'll be saved? How can I know for certain that one day when I stand before God in heaven, he's, he will say, he won't turn me away, but he will welcome me into his presence? So how can I have certainty? Verse 8, that's the question that drives the rest of this chapter. So the rest of Genesis 15 is an answer to the question of verse 8. Where can I get a guarantee? Where can I have certainty? And God, in fact, gives the most incredible assurance as to how Abram can know for sure and how you can know for sure. But it's a little odd, as you see in verse 9. He said to him, answer to how you can know for sure. Bring me a heifer three years old, right? Go get a cow. Okay, we're going to do something, okay? A female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. God says, go get five animals. Now, he doesn't tell Abram what to do. Abram knows what to do. Right? He cuts them in half, and he arranges them in such a way that there's a path down the middle. This is very familiar to Abram. I trust it's not to us. Okay? Right? And it's not because we live in a written age. And so when you want to guarantee an arrangement, a contract, a covenant, how do we do it? We write it down, and then at the bottom, what do we do? We sign our names. Okay? That's what we do. And that becomes now binding on us. In our culture, for some reason, you can break your words all the time, right? You can lie and no consequences, but once you sign on the dotted line, only when you sign, then you're held accountable, okay? And so even, even in marriage, right, you enter in these vows and the pastor says, okay, will you repeat after me and I take you to be my wife, or better for worse and so forth. You make all these vows and then what happens? Well, there's a license, right? You sign it, maybe some states... Uh, 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 people who watch the, the ceremony sign it, the pastor signs it. And once it's, only once it's signed, in the state's eyes, at least in our, in our culture's eyes, is it considered binding, a covenant. Okay, they don't live in a written age. They live in an oral age. So they don't sign things. Instead, what they do is they act out the consequences of, of failure to keep the covenant. And what they do is they cut pieces of animal, they cut them in two, and they place place them in rows, and this is this bloody, gruesome path down the middle. And, and, and they, they then will come, and they will make their promises as they walk between the pieces of the butchered animals. And what they're saying symbolically is, if I don't keep the vows I'm making to you right now, may this happen to me, right? May I be cut into pieces. We might say, may I be blown to bits if I don't fulfill my promises. Right, that's pretty vivid, isn't it? I, I kind of want to try this at the next wedding I do, okay? You know, right, right down the aisle, right? You know? I, you know I, it, the, it may, <laughs> the wedding may stick a little bit better. I don't know. Who knows? Right? I mean, next time you're having work done on your house, you say to your contractor, let's not do the pen and paper thing. That's so boring, right? I was reading Genesis 15. Okay? Let's do this thing. There's some cats outside. We could get it done real quick, right? And, uh, you know, you, you might get better service, right? It, it might work out just fine. Only half of you laughed about the cats. I'm sorry about to the others, right? But, so this is what they did. The, in fact, in the Hebrew, they never make a covenant. The Hebrew is literally they cut a covenant. They cut a covenant. 
And, and, uh, and so if you want a little extra credit for this afternoon, Jeremiah 34 is your passage that explains all this. Let me read you a little bit. God is speaking to covenant breakers, and he says, The men who transgress my covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf they cut into and pass between its parts. Get it? So, okay, you broke your vows. Now what? So the, and we're going to act out the consequences that... Ha, that uh, um, requ- that is required. So Abram slaughter- slaughters the animals, arranges them in half. You got this bloody covenantal path down the middle, and Abram knows, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to enter into a covenant with God. I'm going to have to walk through and make some vows to God. But that's not what happens. And so what happens? You got this amazing scene there in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So he spends the day butchering animals, and then chasing away the vultures. And now the sun is setting, and to go along with that physical darkness, there is this thick, dreadful, spiritual darkness. A terror falls upon him. What's going on? Well, God is drawing near. Holy God is drawing near into the presence of sinful Abram. And it's dreadful to him. Just as it was on Isaiah who said, Woe to me, for I am undone. Just as it was to Daniel who fell down as if he were dead. Just as it was to John who was in the presence of the glorified Lord himself. Right? And, and, and this really darkness happens. And out of the darkness, God speaks of dark times to come. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. So Abram says, when do I get the land? God says, 400 years. You get it in 400 years. And by the way, it's going to be a really hard 400 years. I think this must have been utterly shocking to Abram. Right? By the way, does God know the future? Yes, is the answer. Right? There are Christians running around saying the future is unknowable. God can't know the future. Look what he said. He says, you know for certain. God knows that for certain the future, you get to the end of Genesis. Where are Abram's descendants going? They're going down to Genesis. You start Exodus 1, right? The next book. 400 years have passed, and they come out a few million. By the way, why is God telling him this? I think it's because it's going to look for quite some time that God's not going to complete his promise. Right? Uh, We're slaves in Egypt, and the promised land is inhabited by really tall, strong men. Right? How is this going to happen? God says, I, I know the future. I'm going to tell it to you before it happens, so you believe in me. Just like Jesus promised his disciples in, in John 16, there's coming a time when you'll be persecuted. I'm telling you before it happens so that when it happens, you believe me. Right? I'm going to keep my promises even if it doesn't look likely. This is what God does. Has God ever done this in your life? God says, okay, you're here, and, and I'm going to take you here. You say, okay, God, I'd like to go over here. He says, let's go. Okay? Right? God ever do that to you? You say, God, I thought we're going over there. He says, we are going over there. We're just going my way, okay? God often does this in our lives. This is what he's doing with the people of God. He says, I'm going to give you the land, okay? You're going to get it. But before that, there needs to be slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Will you trust me, he says. Well, you, you want to know why? Why do we have to wait? Why can't I have it right now? Well, answer, verse 16. And they shall come back. 
here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites live in the promised land. They practice terrible acts, some of which I don't want to speak of, but uh, incest, adultery, child sacrifice, terrible, terrible people. And God says there's coming a day when their sin will reach its full measure. It's not there yet. And, and when that happens, God will unleash a flood of Israelites across the Jordan in order to take the land of Canaan. So Joshua's conquest of the promised land is not divine favoritism. It's divine justice to those who continually flaunt the law of God that's written on our hearts. You say, well, why doesn't God do it right now? Why doesn't he act right now? Well, because he's kind. Because he's patient. Because he's gracious and merciful. I mean, you ever look at the world and say, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you stop this? And God says, I don't because I'm patient. I don't because I'm merciful, just like I was with you. I didn't strike you down when you were rebelling me. I waited and brought you to faith. Right? In fact, do you know an Amorite you'll meet in heaven? Her name's Rahab. I said, there's people I need to save. Okay? In the meantime, God, listen, in the meantime, God is willing to put his people in misery. Right? That's true, isn't it? 400 years as slaves. He says, I'm going to put you into slavery for 400 years to bring about my plan. You say, God, I don't like that. Right? You ever say that? I don't like this plan. God, I don't like your plan. I love what J. Vernon McGee, I mean, it just seals the deal for me. He once said long ago, this is, God's world, uh, this is God's world, he does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a world, okay? Okay, it's God's. So I don't, you, you can dislike it all you want. He's still gonna do what he's gonna do, okay? And, 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 and what we're learning here, there in verse 16, is very interesting. There's only so much rebellion God will endure, right? Their sin one day will be complete and then judgment. What that teaches us is that those who are outside of a relationship with God, there is some tipping point of sin. And once we reach that, judgment falls. You say, well, how do I know? Have I reached it? No, no one here has reached it because you're still alive. Okay? But once you're no longer alive, you won't always be alive. You understand that? Right? Then there's no more chance. There's no more opportunities to receive the mercy that God would give you today. Today, as the Bible says, is the day of salvation. Today is the day to believe and to be forgiven. And so he lays this all out for Abram. And after hearing these troubling words, he sees this troubling sight in verse 17. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. He, in the middle of this terrifying darkness, he has a vision of this of smoke and fire. These are very hard words to translate. Your translation may have something different. Both of these words are used to describe the pillar of divine presence, that smoking, fiery cloud that guided Israel back to this land. Both of these words are used to describe God's appearance at Sinai. They came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven. They are tokens of God's presence, they are severe, they are troubling, and they show up, and what happens? You see that in verse 17? Behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between the pieces. God walks the bloody covenantal path. 
I mean, you can imagine what that would be like as Abram's watching in this state of terror, as, the, as this, this, this fiery light and this smoking pot moved down this bloody aisle as the butchered animals glisten in the fire's light. What's God saying? Well, he's saying, if I don't do what I've told you I will do, may I be torn to pieces. God says that. I will bless you. I will change lives. I will bring salvation to the world through your descendants. And I will have followers as many as the stars in the sky. And if I don't, then I, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the creator and sustainer of all existence, may I be cut off. May I be blown to bits. Is that not extraordinary? God says, I will do this. Now, what about Abram? What about Abram? Does he now get up as they would, and he takes his turn to walk down the path, and he makes his vows? No. Abram doesn't walk the covenantal path. Abram simply watches God do it for him. Right? Because God is taking on this covenant alone. In other words, what God is saying, if I don't keep this covenant, may I be cut to pieces. And if you don't keep this covenant, may I be cut to pieces. God takes on the responsibility for both sides of the covenant upon himself. And you can think Abram might have thought, what if I fail you? What if I sin? What if I'm faithless? What if I give my wife away again? What if I falter a hundred times? Won't you say I'm done with you? Won't you say enough of you? I'm moving on to someone else. Won't you say I no longer have a relationship with you? Won't you cut me off? And the Bible says even when we are faithless, he is faithful. God walks through for both of them. If I don't keep this covenant, I'll pay with my own blood. And if you don't keep this covenant, I'll pay with my own. In other words, I will bless you even if it means I have to die. And we read 2,000 years later. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. A dreadful, terrible darkness once again descends. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why are you forsaking me? The Son of God is dying. Not because he failed to keep the covenant, but because we had. You see, when Jesus dies on the cross, he is keeping the covenantal promises found in Genesis 15. He's being cut to pieces. So that he might bless you even when you fail him. You understand, all religions come and say, do this and God will bless you. Do that and God will bless you. And they have their list and their list may be different, but it's all the same. This is what you do and God will accept you. Only Christianity says, God has done this so that he will accept you. It's not about what you do, it is about what he has done. Only Christianity says no matter how many times you fail, if you are in the covenant, he will bless you. He will save you. You don't walk the covenantal path. 
God takes it all upon himself. And then God speaks one last time. Perhaps through that blazing furnace. There in verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Saying to your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river. The river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. If you trace this out, the description mirrors the boundaries of Eden. He is pointing to our return. He is pointing that he has prepared for us a greater homeland. Abram knew it, for the Bible says in Hebrews 11, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth where they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Do you long for a better country? Do you long for a heavenly one? Will God receive you into it? He will, if like Abram, you believe the Lord. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have taken all this upon yourself in Christ. There's no way that our righteousness can earn our place before a holy God. And so you and your great love and kindness to all who would believe have taken it all upon yourself in Jesus that he would die for our trespasses, our sin, our transgressions, be raised again three days later demonstrating that there is life after death and all who unite themselves to Jesus in faith will be saved. I am a sinful man, Father. And yet in your grace and mercy to me and all those here who call on the name of Jesus, you count us as righteous because of the work of Christ. One of those stars bears my name and all who would believe. Perhaps there might be one here or more who would take that step of faith and they would yield their life to King Jesus that they too might be received by you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.